The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. So welcome to the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor and new civil engineer. I'm joined now by Head of Content and Engagement Rob Horgan and our reporter Catherine Kennedy to talk through what's been in the news over the last month. And then a bit later, Catherine and our features editor Nadine Badu are going to be talking about road investment with our special guest, Graham Richards, who is the Office of Rail and Roads Director of Planning and Performance. Hello, guys. Hi, Claire. Hi, Claire. Now, you'd normally expect the period over the Easter break and while we're also in the pre-election purda period for the local elections on the 6th of May to be fairly quiet, but it really hasn't felt like that over the last month, has it? There's certainly been lots of things in the news. So what are the main things that have caught your interest in the last month? Uh, Yeah, you're right, Claire. There's been plenty of news around. We've had more concerns about Crossrail's delivery schedule. HS2 has had its usual share of legal challenges thrown at it and work continues to gather pace at Hinkley Point C as well. However, one story that caught my eye this month doesn't concern our usual list of mega projects, but could have a major impact on infrastructure nonetheless, is of course the proposed London Resorts theme park, which is actually in Kent, not London, but we'll, we'll ignore that for now. What is interesting for us is the responses to the planning application, which have been made public in the last couple of weeks. In particular, the strong objections to the plans by TfL, Network Rail, and a whole host of local councils and local politicians in the Kent, North Kent and South London area. The objections are not to the park itself, but they are all unanimous in the negative impact that the park could and would have on infrastructure in North Kent and London. On the railways, Transport for London has raised concerns that the Elizabeth line would be overwhelmed and Network Rail's raised similar concerns for its high-speed one network, which of course stops at Ebsley International, which would be one of the the nearest stations to the theme park. Meanwhile, on the roads, there have been similar concerns that the Dartford crossing could become overwhelmed and Transport for London has even suggested that the Blackwall Tunnel and the Silvertown Tunnel could become choked once it's built and if plans are given the go-ahead. What is perhaps most alarming is the lack of transport planning that has gone into the, the plans so far, with Transport for London criticising London Resorts for using a spreadsheet to carry out its modelling. It's a bit of deja vu, very similar to the government's handling of the COVID tracking earlier in the summer. That's what it reminded me of. When will we get away from Excel spreadsheets? Um, anyway, London Resorts have said they'll, they'll go away now and assess the consultation responses. So you would hope they'll, they'll do a significant amount of work with Transport for London and Network Rail to come up with a better strategy in terms of mitigating these infrastructure concerns. So I think that's really interesting. I think the issues that have been raised around getting to the new theme park really emphasises how we need to view infrastructure as a system. You can't just look at a new rail line or a new bit of road in isolation anymore. I mean, you can really see that in Highways England's Smart Motorway Review that came out in April, where it's been said that returning all lane running schemes to having a hard shoulder will impact on local roads and create further safety issues. But we'll come back to that in a bit more detail later. Staying on the topic of infrastructure planning, the Institution of Civil Engineers has just launched a consultation on infrastructure planning in the UK to try and understand if the country's approach is as effective as it could be. 
essentially it's looking at whether the National Infrastructure Commission has got enough teeth when it comes to getting things done and whether the Parliament should be more involved in infrastructure planning to get more cross-party support for projects so the pipeline of projects is not as influenced by the political cycle as it currently is. The ICSF now is the right time for such a review with the National Infrastructure Strategy published late last year. It also wants to consider what implications result from the delay between the National Infrastructure Assessment being published in 2018 and the National Infrastructure Strategy coming out over two years later and how that could be avoided in the future. Yeah, with the interconnectivity of infrastructure, it's certainly not an easy plan to get in place. And it's going to get ever more complex, I think, especially with the doubt over future transport use patterns following the pandemic. I'm certainly going to be following that consultation with interest. That's got another few more weeks to run. But there have already been some quite interesting proposals about how the UK could have a more systems view of infrastructure, though, and how we should look at other countries to learn lessons. Catherine, you've been reporting on some of those stories. Can you tell us a little bit more of what ideas the industry's come up with? Yeah, there's been a lot of a lot of discussion around the potential of these maybe more multi-purpose infrastructure projects that could span more than one sector. So one person we've spoken to is Alistair Ledsner from Expedition Engineering, and he's previously said the Lower Thames crossing should include a railway as well as the road. So he said that before, but at the same time, he also feels that the current setup in the UK kind of conspires against that sort of collaboration and he feels the the national infrastructure strategy misses opportunities by organizing infrastructure in these separate silos so basically he is keen for some sort of commission or agency to be given the responsibility to look at the whole transport infrastructure sector rather than different silos, as he calls them. In terms of learning, actually, from other countries and other places, this month in France and Germany, there's been a bit of a move to drive a shift from domestic flights to rail. So what has happened there in France, there's voting happening at the minute on a bill to end short-haul internal flights, where the same journey could be made by train in under two and a half hours. And then in Germany, an agreement has been signed, which I think kind of commits to improving connectivity between aviation and rail and then offering faster connections between cities, which could obviously lead to the discontinuation of some domestic flights. So Alistair feels that that here we could be thinking along the same lines as that, but he kind of emphasises that that needs coordinated thinking across sectors, which doesn't really currently exist. I think he dubbed it the Department for Infrastructure, is that right? Something along those lines, I think, is what he would like, potentially. So there's some really interesting concepts there, but it would call for some major changes in order to realise them. Catherine, you've been following another story around interconnectivity of transport systems too, haven't you? But this one involves connections between two nations and doesn't involve a subsea tunnel this time. (laughs) And this one's about connections between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, no no subsea tunnel this time, sadly. Basically, it's a rail network review which has been launched for the whole island of Ireland and what it will consider is basically how the rail network can improve sustainable connectivity between major cities and then enhance regional accessibility as well. And I think it will also look at the feasibility of higher speeds on the network and whether there is potential as well to increase the use of the network for freight. So I suppose the the real strength in that and the positive is it is the whole island of Ireland and it's looking at connecting Northern Ireland and the Republic and kind of looking at what benefits can be brought 
across you know both those places and then I, I suppose from what we've talked about the only question is whether that should actually also involve other modes of transport too should it be wider than rail based on kind of what Alistair said but I, I don't know it's definitely a positive that it's it's looking at the whole island. It's certainly interesting but I think the one thing that's really changed with all these plans that are coming through is the consideration of sustainability within them and acceptance of the challenge that's faced by civil engineers in delivering new infrastructure under the carbon net zero targets. And I think that's something we're going to see more focus on as we go through the year and head towards COP26 in November. Rob, there's been some big news stories around carbon net zero and infrastructure this month, haven't there? Yeah, there have. And um, it's all driven by the UK's updated carbon emissions targets, which are now set to slash emissions by 78% by 2035. There's been little detail about what that actually means or how that will be achieved so far, but that's the target. And that announcement has already sparked quite a bit of reaction. I think it was the following day or two days later, 17 rail bodies urged the government to immediately draw up a programme of electrification projects in order to hit this target. Without such such a plan, the industry warns that it will be impossible to decarbonise the country's railways. Currently, there's no major electrification schemes in the sort of near future that have been signed off. So that would be a a huge step change for the rail industry and uh, one that has been called for before as well. It's sort of been an ongoing thing for the last couple of years, really, um, this sort of pipeline of electrification projects. Meanwhile, on the roads, uh, a group of 52 academics and transport planners have written to Transport Secretary Grant Shapps and called for an emergency review of the Silvertown Tunnel to determine if it remains in line with the government's revised targets. This is another one that's sort of been talked about quite heavily over the last couple of years, especially in the run-up to the mayoral election at the moment. But it all centres around the fact that planning permission was given in 2017 before the UK had committed to such ambitious targets. And it does beg the question of whether planning permission once is granted is final or whether it does need to be continually assessed, which obviously also ties into the RIS2 legal challenge, which will be going through the courts this summer. And I think the outcome of that court case will actually have a a huge impact and set a big precedent for infrastructure planning in the year to come or in the years to come, sorry. It's also, I think, very important ahead of COP26, like you said, Claire, I think it's these sort of issues are going to become bigger and more prevalent as we build towards COP26 and then beyond. Yeah, I think certainly the drive to net zero is something we can, is going to be central to all infrastructure decisions in the future. But at the moment, we just don't have good solutions to reducing traffic other than pandemic lockdowns, but that's now easing. I think the need for more road capacity has long been a challenge, particularly for Highways England, and it's sought to do that by Rather than building more roads, it brought through the concept of smart motorways using the hard shoulder as a live running lane. But that's been quite controversial, especially over the last few months. And there have been a number of reports and news stories that have broken around that topic in the last few weeks, haven't there? Catherine, can you bring us up to speed? No pun intended there with what's been going on. <laughs> yes, loads of smart motorway news. This month it has all been happening. So the Highways England published their first year progress report this week and basically a few key headlines from it they've said that reintroducing the hard shoulder might actually lead to more deaths because potentially drivers would divert off onto less safe 
roads. Then also there are uh, safety measures which are being accelerated. So stopped vehicle detection on all smart motorways will be ruled out by September 2022. And no new smart motorways will open without that technology now, it's been said. So um, the report contains various updates like that on the initial report which came out last year. There's also then the Transport Select Committee inquiry, which is still ongoing, looking at the the safety of the roads. And then on top of that, we this month had done a number of FOIs which came back and we've kind of worked on a few stories based based on those. So one of those found that the majority of emergency refuge areas on a stretch of the M1 smart motorway were shorter than the advised 100 metre length. Um, So they are admittedly in some cases, not much shorter. It ranges from kind of 94 metres to 99 metres in the dimensions, but 16 of the 20 ERAs are shorter. And the AA have come back and said that that extra five metres could actually make make a difference. And there were some questions about whether it was due to cost saving um, that they were shorter, but Highways England have, have said that it's to do with the geography of the area. That just seems strange. Why wouldn't you position the emergency refuge area somewhere slightly different if you could make it longer? Yes. So a lot a lot of questions. And, and yet on that, the AA, they, they said it would be interesting to know how exactly the geography justifies that reduction in length. But that was an interesting one to look at. And then I guess a few other news stories around the awareness campaigns and marketing campaigns, public awareness for for the roads. So another FOI showed that more than half of the 4.5 million that Highways England has spent publicising smart motorways was spent in the last two years. So that kind of raised questions from people about why more money wasn't spent towards the start to let people know how to use the roads and, and make them aware of them. And then uh, kind of just after that, uh, a public awareness campaign came out telling people to go left to to get into an emergency refuge area if they were breaking down. But that kind of had a bit of a backlash too because people felt it was a bit insensitive. It was sent to, set to a song, um, which I think was meant to stick in people's minds to help them remember to go left. But given everything that's happened on the roads, I think people felt it it was a bit lighthearted, maybe. Yeah, I think the smart motorway story is one that we're going to see continuing for some time. But building new roads isn't popular either. And on that topic, I think now would be a good point to hand over to you, Catherine and Nadine, and of course, our special guest. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace if possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com. Thanks, Claire. Now, joining us today is Graham Richards, who is the Office of Rail and Roads Director of Planning and Performance and an executive member of the board. He is also a member of the Chartered Institution of Highways and Transportation. An experienced transport planner across a range of modes, Graham is familiar with both the rail industry and the strategic road sector. He has worked on the construction of major rail projects as well as integrating major developments with operational road and rail networks. Prior to joining the ORR, he held posts in Transport for London, the London Borough of Southwark, the Strategic Rail Authority and Rail Link Engineering. So welcome, Graham, and thank you for joining us. Hi there. Hello. 
So as the Highways Monitor, the ORR is responsible for monitoring and enforcing the performance and efficiency of Highways England. So firstly, can you tell us a bit about the ORR's role as the Highways Regulator and how that fits into Highways England's plans for the strategic road network? Yes, sure. Um, So going back to 2015, when Highways England was created, um, created out of the Highways Agency, a new funding model was also created at the same time, giving Highways England five-year chunks of money and five-year obligations to deliver. And these five years are known as road periods. So these are large amounts of money, public money. Um, So to give you an example, in the first road period, it was about £17.5 billion. So ORR was then given a monitoring role. What do we bring? So we very much bring independence. We're independent of both Highways England and the Department of Transport. And we bring transparency through various reports that we publish on our website. So broadly speaking, what what is our role? We track how well Highways England is delivering, how well it's doing against the obligations that it's been set for the money it's been given. If there are problems, we require improvements and ultimately we can actually levy a fine. And we provide advice to the Secretary of State. So most obviously we provide advice in setting the road investment strategies through an efficiency review. So what's really interesting is how do we go about this? So that's that's the framework. So our overarching intent is to be forward-looking. So we try and identify and resolve issues early rather than waiting for bad things to happen and then taking action. Again, although we've got the ability to levy a fine, we do see this as the last resort. Uh, If we ever needed to levy a fine, then something terrible has happened. And quite frankly, we don't want to end up in that situation in the first place. So this this often means we don't have a very high profile in the sector. And... And you've mentioned there the the road investment strategies and, and, and that kind of sets out the funding available to Highways England for these five year um, periods of management and investment. So we are now one year into the second road investment strategy. And I wonder, can you tell us what are the key areas Highways England is focusing on for RIS2 and what progress has been made so far? Sure. So, yes, as you say, we're, we're in the second road period. Um, now, for the road period as a whole, it's about £27.4 billion. So it's actually a significant step up from the first road period, about £10 billion more. So broadly speaking, Housing England's got about £11 billion for operating, maintaining and renewing the network. So this helps keep the roads running safely and smoothly. Um, again, the outcome of which is defined by a number of key performance indicators. Then it's got about £15 billion for improvement projects. Now, this is this is a whopping amount for Highways England. It's almost double the previous road period and there are more complex schemes. So it has to do all of this while also finding two billion pounds worth of efficiencies that we identified. So all in all, it's a big job for this road period. Progress so far, clearly year one has been clouded by the extraordinary circumstances we're in, but generally we think it's on course. And so what were the ORR's key priorities for the first year of RIS2? So When we started the year, our priority was to ensure there's a smooth transition from one period to the next. Um, That's hard enough in regular times, but it was made infinitely more complex by clearly the pandemic, but also actually by the transitional arrangements for exiting the EU. So more specifically then, we focused on a couple of areas throughout the year. So how Highways England was dealing with the extraordinary circumstances. 
So some of the KPIs, uh, particularly the ones that are affected by traffic volumes, as you can appreciate, traffic volumes did did plummet in the first part of the year, although they have recovered slightly. Anyway, they they became less relevant. So we we had to focus our attention more on the actions Highways England was taking to support road users, such as how it was continuing to maintain focus on safety improvement. And then the second broad area was around the capital delivery programme. So about two thirds of the programme is currently in the development phase. So we wanted to investigate jointly with Highways England sort of how well it was strengthening its planning capability Basically, whether it's giving itself the best shot at smooth delivery when these projects moved into construction. And so in terms of those priorities, and as we hopefully come out of the other end of the pandemic, how, how is your approach changing for the year ahead? And then obviously the remainder of RIS2. So, so as you say, so I'm hopeful that we'll return to sort of more regular tracking of the metrics. So um, we'll get back on, on track in, in terms of the key performance indicators. In terms of the capital delivery work, so the work we did last year, we found, we did find that Highways England has put in place quite an extensive number of initiatives to strengthen its capability with sound underlying rationale. So there's no doubt we found evidence that of its willingness to drive improved performance. However, there's a lot of initiatives and there's a few key risks that we've pinpointed and we'll be tracking those in the forthcoming year. And thinking back a bit then to RIS 1, there were a lot of lessons to be learned from that in terms of what went well, but also the things that didn't go quite so well. So how have those lessons helped to shape the ORR's approach to RIS 2? Yes, a really good question. So um, we place great weight in terms of the work we do on Network Rail and Highways England and High Speed 1 as well. In fact, all the infrastructure managers that we look at, we place great emphasis on learning lessons and being a learning organisation. So we we, we should um, practice what we preach. So we do try and continuously improve. So on reflection in RIS1, I think we ended up in a, a very long and protracted debate with Highways England over proving how had it met its efficiency targets. As you can appreciate, Efficiency, cost reductions, one person's efficiency may just be another person's while well, you're just catching up with good practice. So as a result of that, what we've done for this road period is we've agreed the rules up front with Highways England. So what do we think that will do? We think it'll allow Highways England the ability to focus its initiatives on what we're looking for. And hopefully it'll mean less long and protracted debates with them um, as we ask them to evidence that they have delivered cost efficiencies. And, and so how do you actually measure Highways England's performance? You know, what kind of metrics are you focused on? Yes, so that, that's key to our monitoring. And I mentioned earlier that some of the key performance indicators had been affected by the pandemic. So first of all, we have um, about a dozen or so key performance indicators. So this is things like 50% reduction in the number of people killed or seriously injured, year-on-year increases in user satisfaction, and some metrics around average delay. So average delay, as you can imagine, was one of the ones that was most affected by traffic volumes, but also user satisfaction, transport focus, um, suspended its surveys, its face-to-face service quite rightly during uh, the restrictions. So we've got an absence of data. So first of all, there's the key performance indicators. Then we monitor delivery of 
key milestones for the 69 schemes in the enhancements program. So they, they are essentially start of works or opening for traffic. And finally, um, we monitor highways delivery, Highways England's delivery of the safety control mechanisms in the Smart Motorway Stock, stock Take Action Plan, which came out of the the stock take report that the department published about a year ago, uh, we we wrapped that into our monitoring framework. So we have a specific focus on that to make sure that Highways England delivers them. And on a sort of day-to-day basis then, what exactly does the monitoring of that progress and the kind of performance, what does that look like? Yeah, so um, we receive regular monitoring information, which we analyse, but this by definition, this, this often has a time, it, it's, a, it's a lag from real time. So we supplement that with a number of forward-looking deep dives. So in terms of the regular monitoring information, so a good example was a few years ago when we identified that Highways England was falling behind in its structures exa- examinations, its inspections. We escalated the issue and Highways England actually responded really positively. It put in place plans to catch up and ultimately it did so actually. In terms of the deep dives work, a good example is probably the one I mentioned earlier on capital delivery, where we've gone in, provided an objective review and then identified a number of future risks that we'll track. And it's it's interesting to hear about because a lot of this work isn't obviously especially visible to us being outside the ORR and outside Highways England. Um, but yeah, so can you can you talk us through why then that day-to-day monitoring is so important? Yes, yeah, no, I fully accept that uh, we're not high profile. Often in our stakeholder surveys, it's pointed out that uh, we're not very, our work isn't very visible. So again, reiterating that our whole focus is not to wait until something bad happens before we take action. That would be high profile, uh, but we don't want that to happen. So it often means it's really hard to judge the benefit of our work. But to give you, again, using the example of the structures, so we identified it was falling behind it in its inspections. We thought that was a bad thing. Thankfully, I haven't got a counterfactual. So who knows what would happen if Highways England hadn't caught up on its, on its inspections. If there was a structural defect, that could have had a significant impact on road users. So thankfully, I don't know, but my, my gut tells me that we did the right thing. We did a good job. Um, we got in there. Highways England caught up on its inspections. And so how do you balance all of those things in terms of lessons learned from RIS1, the kind of day-to-day monitoring, and then looking ahead to improving things for the future? How do those three priorities work together? Uh, yeah, really good question. So I've got I've got a team of about 20 people who work on the roadside. I also have teams who work on the rail side. So I can look across both road and rail. It's a mixture of engineers, economists, transport planners. They work closely together. It's a small team, it's 20 people, so we can ensure that no one's working in a silo. But one of the things we, we've learned from our rail experience, and we've got, we're a lot more established in the rail sector, is to be risk-based. So when we put together our annual activity and our business plans, we are mindful of the five-year period But again, we want to draw from the intelligence we've built up from all the different aspects of work, breaking down the silos and identify where we see the risks. And again, for us, it's all about risk-based activity planning. 
And in terms of Highways England's performance, what then are some of the variations that the OR has identified across the country in different regions and what are the reasons behind this variation in performance? Yeah, so I mentioned we, we hold Highways England to account for national targets, um, but that often can mask variations between regions. So we supplement that with a relatively new analytical approach towards trying to benchmark between Highways England's regions that approach is starting to mature. So we're getting a longer time series, uh, but it's still not a fully mature approach. So our most recent report was published in February. Uh, we look at five metrics across the regions, user satisfaction, network availability, incident clearance, average delay, pavement condition. So <laughs> there are a lot of different reasons for each, but it's interesting when you place them alongside each other. So that's what I find most fascinating. So for example, average delay in Yorkshire and Northeast has decreased the most over the last five years, and it's actually the lowest level for any of the regions. And at the same time, user satisfaction in that same region has risen the most of all the regions. And it just enables conversations between us and Highways England to ask why is that, conversations within Highways England to try and understand that hopefully drawing out the best practice and learning lessons across with each other. And so the the ORR's next annual assessment of Highways England's performance is due to take place this July. So can you talk us through some of the key issues you'll be focusing on? Yeah, so I think there's three key issues and it's probably um, repeating some of the things I've already talked about. So firstly, how, how has Highways England dealt with the extraordinary circumstances? As I say, not just the pandemic, but also exiting the transitional period for exiting the EU. Without giving too much away, on the whole, we think Highways England's done a good job throughout the year. Then we clearly will focus on safety and how Highways England has maintained a focus on safety, uh, how it has delivered on its key performance indicator in that area. And then finally, it's back to the capital delivery programme and the work we've been doing on Highways England's planning capabilities as projects move from the development phase into the construction phase and what it needs to do to strengthen that for the rest of the control period, or road period, sorry. Sorry, I I get confused between control periods and road periods. Same here. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) all the time. Um, Yeah, so smart motorway safety then is an issue that remains high on the agenda. And you've touched on this a little bit already but Highways England has now published its kind of first year progress report for 2021 following that initial report that came out last year and in this year's report I think Highways England said that reintroducing hard shoulders on smart motorways could lead to more deaths I think because the congestion might increase and then road users would go on to other smaller less safe Roads and what what's kind of your initial response to Highways England's findings this year? Uh, yes, so Highways England published its progress report a few days ago. This forms part of a review of the evidence underpinning the stop take conclusions that actually the Transport Secretary has recently asked us to do. So we're currently assessing the evidence. And so, are, are you able to kind of give us a bit of an overview of what that review will actually involve? Sure. Yeah. So. As I mentioned, the department published a stock take of the evidence a year ago, uh, which led to various decisions on smart motorways. So the quality of this data and the transparency is really important to build public trust and to ensure that the right decisions are being taken. So we've been asked four questions. Firstly, are the data and evidence 
used in the stock take and the progress report that you've just mentioned, are they reliable and robust? Then we've been asked, have the comparisons that have been made been made in an appropriate way? Thirdly, we've been asked, are there any other data out there that could be used to enhance the DFT's understanding? And finally, we've been asked whether the data and evidence available, is there data and evidence available which can compare internationally? And with that, with the ORR's independent review, I think the the road sector has welcomed it, but there's sort of just a few concerns that it might delay action to tackle safety. And is this something that the ORR has considered in terms of accelerating the timeline for publishing the findings or when do you expect to be able to share them? Sure. So I don't think the work we've been asked to do, it doesn't in any way hold up action to tackle smart motorway safety. So indeed, the Transport Secretary made an announcement of further accelerated measures a few days ago. In terms of our analytical assurance, we received the final commission on the 14th of April, and we have until the 28th of June to report to the Secretary of State. So that's sort of 10 or 11 or 12 weeks. So there's a balance to be struck here between the speed of our work and the thoroughness of our work. And so just looking ahead, I guess, the remainder of RIS2, as well as smart motorways and road safety, what do you think will be some of the biggest challenges for Highways England and also the the wider road sector? (laughs) Well, yes. How long have we got? So (laughs) big question. It's it's hard to look beyond decarbonisation, both what can be done now and what can be done in the future. But anyway, if you do look beyond that, then I think... We've seen planning delays to some of the big projects, so Lower Thames Crossing, the two projects on the A303 and Junction 5 at the M2. So, so as a result of those planning delays, I think construction work is now starting to bunch up in later years. So we're starting to think, well, what, what will the knock-on effect on road users be? Uh, not just on the strategic road network, but on the other road networks. So this, as work, as construction work starts to bunch up and be done concurrently, it needs to be really carefully thought through and managed for existing road users. And so in, in terms of what happens at the end of RIS2, do you think there'll be a RIS3? And how might that look kind of different as it will finish, I guess, at the same time that the government's ban on new petrol and electric vehicles will, will come in? Do you think there's perhaps scope for RIS3 to include things like infrastructure for EV charging? So... So, wow, yes, really good question. Um, we're all currently planning for um, the next road investment strategy, so RIS3 and another road period. As, as you say, the, the decarbonation, the climate crisis is upon us. So the decarbonisation agenda will have to, I, I suspect, will heavily influence that. So it's, it's very much driven by the Department of Transport. Uh, they're in the lead on it, but I'm under no illusion. So what does that mean for me? probably means that I, well, it does mean that I need to ensure that I've got the right skills and the right capabilities in my team to be able to provide the most expert advice in that context. Absolutely. And you touched on obviously decarbonisation as being a a key issue. So do you think that things like obviously COP26 is coming up? How might decisions there kind of shape, I guess, risk three going forward? So yeah, so all these decisions, so the government's um, strategy, the plans, anything that comes out of the major conference, then that will inevitably need to be taken into account as the plans are developed. We're still at an early stage of RIS3, so it's it's timely. So it, it, whatever conclusions come out of that can be built in. I guess what's more difficult is 
but what would that mean for any immediate actions for the actions that will be taken within the current road period? So there's a lot, a lot to look out for going forward. And there's there's so much more we could talk about. But unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. So thank you so much for joining us, Graham. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking about my work. Thank you. And that concludes another episode of the Engineers Collective. So thank you all for listening in. And I hope you can join us again soon for more insight into the world of engineering. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com. Bentley.